Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brethren. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Sister Lisa, for that. We're really blessed by that. Where joy and sorrow meet... What I want to speak about today is where grace and law meet. I think there's a lot of confusion in the Christian community about grace and law. Many believe that the law is done away, and we are just under grace, and we can do whatever we like. Others believe that the law must be rigidly adhered to, and even though they are Christians, they behave very much like Pharisaical Jews and very strict about the law. So where do grace and law meet? I'd like to spend the bulk of the sermon in the book of Romans, but before going there and examining the new covenant, because Paul does an excellent job of explaining the new covenant in the book of Romans, before going there, I'd like to examine the old covenant and understand the new covenant in the context of two previous covenants, namely the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. But let's go to the end. Uh, Deacon Jan was in the book of Revelation. Let's go there, Revelation 13 to begin. Let's see how this ends. We'll notice an interesting scripture. Pastor Murray referenced this scripture last week. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 4, It says they worshipped the dragon. So there is a religion that will be extant in the world, coming just in the near future, where human beings will be worshipping the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? So they are very proud of the glory and the power of the beast. And who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, so three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him, he was given permission and power to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So people think that Christianity is a walk in the park. It is not. We better know what we believe. And we better be willing to stand up for what we believe and even die for what we believe. Because here the prophecy says in the future, in the not too distant future, that the beast will make war with the saints and he'll be given power to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So worldwide. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life. So there are people whose names are not written in the book of life, and these people will worship the beast. The book of life of the Lamb. Notice this. Slain from the foundation of the world. So here we are, fast forward to the future, and there are human beings that are not part of the Holy Covenant. Their names are not written in the book of life. And these human beings worship the beast and the dragon. 
And the book of life that has our names written in it was written by the Lamb. And the reason our names are written in this book of life is this Lamb was slain. We heard Deacon Jan talking about the Passover, the blood of Christ. His blood was shed from the foundation of the world. At the very founding of the earth, Christ's sacrifice was determined. Let's see that in Genesis 1. And if that sacrifice, in a sense you could say, our names are written in the book of life with the ink of Christ's blood. His blood enables our name to be written in the book of life. And this blood was shed at the very foundation. Genesis 1 and verse 14. Pastor Murray was here. And God said, here is the fourth day, he's creating the the lights. He says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to, to divide the day from the night. And let them be for what? So here God is recreating the earth. This is the foundation of the earth. And he's creating the sun and the moon and the stars for a purpose. So he hasn't created man yet. He's creating the sun and the moon. And the purpose of these lights is to be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. This word, seasons, is the Hebrew word moede. Moede. So the sun and the moon are put in the sky as moede. Let's see this Hebrew word, moede. It means a fixed time, specifically a festival. God hasn't even made man yet, and he's put the, the sun and the moon in the sky to set appointments, that these are set times, that God is going to call his people to worship him and have communion with him, a fixed time, specifically a festival, by implication, an assembly, as convened for a definite purpose. So how do we know? Here it is, the Sabbath day. I believe Brother Larry in the opening prayer, he said to God, your day. He didn't say our day, it's your day. So how do we know to convene on this day? It's a divine appointment that was set at the foundation of the world. Before God even made man, he had moede. By implication, an assembly is convened for a definite person, a, pla- a, p- a purpose, a place of solemn assembly. So we have the sun, which enables us to understand the Sabbath. Every seven sunsets is holy time. The seventh sunset is a time that God is, it's a set appointment, and he's calling his people, those whose names are written in the book of life, to come and assemble. And he will have special communion with us, and he will bless us. That's the sun. What about the moon? Let's go to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 and verse 4 sorry let's start in verse 1 God says and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Jews It doesn't say that. These are not the feasts of the Jews. As Brother Larry said when he was opening in prayer, your days, your day, concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy 
convocations. Even these are my feast. And this word feasts is moede. So in Genesis 1.14, when God created the sun and the moon, they were for moede. And here in Leviticus 23, God says, these are my moede. This is why I created the sun and the moon, so that you could observe these days. These are my days. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation, a, a solemn assembly, moede. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, we come to verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. Again, we go back to that moede. Here, God is going to outline all the holy days, and as Brother Jan explained to us, the Passover is the beginning. This whole plan is outlined in these holy days, and it begins with the Passover. In the 14th day of the first moon, at even, at sunset, so we've got the moon and the sun working together, so we can know the divine appointment, the first moon at sunset is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And right here, brethren, in this one little passage, as we look at the spring holy days, is the meeting of grace and law. This is the joining of grace and law. Grace is the Passover. That Christ sacrificed himself so that our names could be written in the book of life. It's nothing that we did. While we were enemies of God, we were his enemies. He sacrificed himself for us. It's a free gift. This is grace. Now that we come under grace, he says immediately, the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days when we, we put leaven out of our lives and we keep it out of our lives. And we know that leaven is a symbol of sin. You take a little bit of leaven, and it just spreads. And that's what sin is like. So God uses yeast, or leaven, to say, that symbolizes sin. If you, if you tolerate it, if you play with it, it will take over your nature. So get it out. That's law. Obey the law. Be holy, be righteous. This is the meeting of grace and law. The rest of the holy days, then, the moede, right from the foundation of the world, demonstrate God's plan for mankind. It starts, as Brother Jan said, with Passover. Then, the days of unleavened bread. Once we're brought into Christ, we live righteously. We count 50 to come to Pentecost, where God then gives the Holy Spirit to enable us to take on holy nature, and that begins really the church age. Then we have the day of the, again, this is all here in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Trumpets, when Christ returns. Judgment then atonement, when the whole world is brought to be at one with God. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days, the millennial rule of Christ. And then at the end, the last great death, when we have the second resurrection and the judgment. So the whole plan of God and how he is working with mankind, right from the foundation of the world. And so the Lamb was slain, and grace, grace, was right there at the beginning. And law was right there at the beginning. So grace and law are not separated. They are joined together, inexorably together. God, 
and Deacon Jan mentioned this, works with man through covenants, agreements. God is not just loose, willy-nilly, does things just because he feels like doing them. When he works with man, he works with man through a covenant. And so let's define covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant, or that covenant is translated from, is berit, berit. And it means a treaty, an alliance, an agreement. Covenant is a good word. It's kind of old English. In, in, in modern vernacular, we might just say a contract. It's a contract. But I think covenant puts a bit more weight behind it. I think when we say covenant, it's a stronger uh, agreement. We talk about the marriage covenant. We might have a mortgage covenant. We have bank covenants. In fact, I have a client, this is a billion-dollar company, that has not been able to maintain its bank covenants. And it's being forced into bankruptcy. Covenant is legal. When you break the covenant, there are consequences. And so God makes covenant with man. These are spiritual covenants that God makes with man. And they're legal agreements. There are consequences to breaking them. But there are two types of covenants. God can have a covenant where the agreement says, if you do this, then I'll do this. We call this a conditional covenant. If you do this, I'll bless you in this way. But if you do this, well, then I'm going to curse you. I'm going to punish you. It's an agreement. It's a legal agreement. And God will exercise it because God is faithful. This is conditional. But there are also unconditional agreements. God makes unconditional agreements. So an unconditional covenant would be the covenant he made with Noah. That after he flooded the earth, he made an agreement, a a binding agreement with Noah, that he will never flood the earth again. It doesn't matter what man does, how evil man becomes, God will never, ever, ever flood the earth again. That's a one-way covenant. There's no condition. Another unconditional covenant is the covenant he made with David. That through his line, the Messiah would come. No conditions attached. It's unconditional. There's nothing that David's descendants could do to cause God to break that agreement. It's unconditional. The most important unconditional agreement in the Bible is the agreement that God made with Abraham. This covenant is unconditional. It can never be broken. And so when we talk about old covenant and new covenant, we need to be very clear in our minds that the old covenant is not the covenant God made with Abraham. This this was an unconditional uh, covenant that can never be broken. God swore by himself, because he could swear by no higher, that in blessing he would bless Abraham. And the whole world would be blessed through Abraham. And there's nothing Abraham's descendants can do to break that agreement. In fact, Abraham's descendants were so evil that the northern ten tribes... God had to wipe them out. In 721 BC, he brought in the Assyrian nation, and the Assyrian nation obliterated Israel, wiped them out to the point where they're lost. They're spread out. Most of them were destroyed. Those that survived were spread out. The southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin were so evil that Habakkuk 
pleaded with God. He said, there is such wickedness in Judah, and you don't do anything. And God said, hold on, I I am doing something. I am working a work that you will not believe, though it be told you. Do you know what I'm doing, Habakkuk? I am raising up that bitter and hasty nation, the Babylonians. They crush the Assyrians, they become the world empire, and they move in and they destroy Judah. But the wickedness of Judah and Benjamin has nothing to do with the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's unconditional. So even though the northern tribes were wiped out, God had to leave a remnant from the southern tribe so that he could perform the oath the covenant that he made with Abraham. So that's how the Jews survived. And that's why today when we're in the New Testament and we talk about something being Jewish, we never talk about Israelitish because Israel was destroyed and a remnant from Judah was left. And not because they were righteous. They were wicked beyond belief. They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. But because God is righteous, And he made a promise to Abraham. And what did Abraham do for that promise? Nothing. He did nothing. Except believe God. God asked him to do something. And he believed God. And God was so impressed with his faith. He said, that man is righteous. I pronounce him righteous. And in blessing, I I, I swear. God himself says, I swear. I will bless this man and his descendants. And the man did nothing except believe God. And so this covenant cannot be broken. And when we come to the new covenant, and we say the old covenant is done away, we are not talking about this covenant. It's unconditional. The covenant we are talking about, the old covenant, is the covenant God made with Moses. The Mosaic covenant had conditions. And Israel broke those conditions. And so God had to have a new covenant. And we'll look at this. Let's just quickly look at Genesis 26. Is this clear so far? Everybody's with me? Okay. Genesis 26 and verse 3. This is now speaking to Isaac. God says to him, stay in this land, and I will be with you, verse 3, and I will bless you. For unto you and unto your seed I will give all these countries, notice this, and I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham your father. I will perform this. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give unto your seed all these countries, and and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice. I told him to do something, and he just believed me. And he did what I asked him to do. And notice this. He kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Abraham believed God. As Passover, first there's grace. God gave him grace. And then he lived according to the laws. He was, he was a pagan man. He came from an idolatrous family. And God called him out, and he believed God. 
But upon believing God, he then obeyed God. And God had commandments. And Abraham obeyed these commandments. So when we talk about the Mosaic covenant being done away, we're not talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And very clearly in this agreement that God had with Abraham, first there was grace, but then there was law. Abraham obeyed God's laws. It says so right here. The word perform is the Hebrew word kum, and it means to accomplish or make good. God will make good the oath that he swore by himself to Abraham. So throughout the whole Bible, what we're watching is the outworking of God performing this oath that he made to Abraham. And it, it can never go away until it is fulfilled in the kingdom as Deacon Jan mentioned. Let's now look at Jeremiah to see the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, and let's read this carefully together, beginning in verse 31. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the house of Israel and Judah. Behold, This is future. The days come, says the Lord, that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. God is a God of covenants. When he gives his word, it will never be broken. And and Abraham somehow understood this about God, that you can trust him. You can trust his word. But here God is saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. So we have to begin to wonder, well, what's wrong with the old covenant? Because God never breaks a covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, notice when he made this covenant, what we call the old covenant. When did he make it? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is not the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Mosaic covenant. He made it when he brought them out of Egypt which, my covenant, they broke. God doesn't break covenants. Man breaks covenants, unfortunately. So we made this, this binding agreement, and they broke it, even though I was a husband to them. So it's like a marriage agreement. And they were unfaithful, even though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But, this is going to be different now, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And notice who the covenant is with. It's not with the whole world. We think, oh, new covenant, it's for everybody. No, it's not. The new covenant is only and it's exclusively for the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, notice the difference in this covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts. So it's not that grace comes and we throw away the law. It's that grace comes and instead of the law being written on tablets of stone, under this new covenant, the law will be written in the hearts of who? Israel. The same Israel. We're just going to have a new covenant now. And instead of me writing this on on stone, I'm going to write it in the hearts of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God 
and they shall be my people. Matthew 15, just to underline the fact that this new covenant is not for everybody. It's not for the whole world. The the covenant with Noah was for the whole world. The covenant with Abraham is only Abraham's descendants. And in fact, I shouldn't even say that. The Sister Lisa gave out a handout to the young people showing Abraham's descendants. And the covenant with Abraham is not for all of them. It's only for the descendants that come through the line of Isaac and Jacob. So if you come through Ishmael or you come through Esau, you're not part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the covenant is exclusive. The Mosaic covenant was with Israel. And God says we're going to have a new covenant. And so we come now to Matthew, the Gospels, where Christ is here on earth fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He comes through the line of David as promised by God. Verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, she's not an Israelite, she's from Canaan, came out to the same coast. And she cried to him. She's heard about him. She's, he's famous. He heals people. And so she heard about him, and she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. She calls him Lord. You son of David. She acknowledges that he's a son of David. This is, what, this is what's happening. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. This is a very serious situation. My daughter has a devil that is uh, tormenting her. And you are the Lord. You are Christ. I'm coming to you for mercy. But he, he ignored her. It says here, it says right here, he answered her not a word. She's in dire straits. A, a demon is, is tormenting her daughter. And she's reaching out and saying, oh Lord. And he completely ignores her. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. Really, like, just do what she asks and send her away. Because she's crying after us. But he answered them and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ did not come to preach to the whole world. He says right here, I have come only and exclusively for the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. This time he answers her. And he doesn't say, I'd be happy to help you. I see the trouble that you're under. Aren't these demons evil? Aren't they terrible? We've got to do something about this. He doesn't say that. He says, listen, woman, Canaanite woman, it's not appropriate to take the children's bread. I'm come to feed the children of Israel. It's inappropriate for me to take their bread and notice this, and cast it to dogs. You're a dog. That's what Christ is saying to this woman. You're a Canaanite. You're a dog. I can't take what's food for Israel, the children, and give it to the rest of mankind. And she said, truth. Truth. She said, who do you think you're talking to? Do you know who my father is? She just said, Fair enough. Truth. Yet, the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. 
And Christ answered and said to her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Christ responds to faith. And, and it's not faith just, I believe, I believe. Faith is, I believe in the word of God. And I understand from the word of God that God has a covenant with Israel. But if I'm a dog, I, I notice dogs will sometimes eat the scraps from the table of the children. So is there some allowance for me? He says, great is your faith. Be it unto you, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This is an exception. That Christ reached out and healed a Canaanite daughter. This is not Christ's manner. It was an exception because he was so impressed that this woman had faith in the word of God. Not in her own, I, I believe, I believe. No, the word of God says, this is what you do. But, you know what? Even dogs get to eat from the children. And he responded to that. Notice as well in Isaiah 53, the very death of, not so his life, his ministry, was for Israel. But his death was also for Israel. Not for the whole world. Isaiah 53. We have to accept the word of God as it is written. Let's not make up our own religion. And much of what is called Christianity today is made up religion. It completely dispenses the word of God and it makes up some kind of freaky religion that they think is independent of the covenants of God. And there is no such thing. God works with man through his covenants, through binding agreements. And it's impossible to have a relationship with God outside of a covenant that God has made with man. Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He, Christ, is despised and rejected of men. This, this God being, Christ, lived an agonizing life. He was despised. He was rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, he was very familiar with grief. It's like he grieved every day. And we, we, Israel, not the whole world, this is Isaiah speaking, we, Israel, hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we, Israel, didn't esteem him. John says he came to his own, and his own esteemed him not. He came to his own. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, Israel, and carried our Israel sorrows. Yet we, Israel, did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our Israel transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. So Israel can have peace with God under the new covenant because the chastisement of their sins was on Christ. And so because of that, Israel could have peace with God. With his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. The world did not go astray. It was already astray. Israel was within the covenant. They went astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter from the very foundation of the world. 
he was slaughtered. So here he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Christ's life and Christ's death was exclusively for Israel, according to the covenant that God had with Abraham. Acts 3 and verse 25. Let's see now, how is it that anybody today from any nation can become a Christian? The covenant is with Israel. How is it that I could be a Christian? I'm not Israel. At least I don't know if I am. Because remember as well, the the northern tribes were scattered. And they mixed their genes with many, many people. So part of redeeming Israel is opening the covenant up to the Gentiles. By bringing the Gentiles into the covenant, at the same time, God is bringing the lost tribes back into the covenant. Because they're lost. They're spread out to different nations. So when we open the covenant up to the Gentiles, we're also bringing back Israel, the northern tribes. Acts 3 and verse 25 says, You are the children of the prophets, speaking to the Jews, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Notice this, saying unto Abraham, in your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So the seed is Christ, and in Christ, somehow, every nation will be blessed. It's it's somehow we have to get this covenant open. Let's move to Acts 14. And beginning in verse 19, it says, There came there certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul. So Paul is now taking, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's taking the gospel message, and he's preaching it to Gentiles. And this is upsetting the Jews. And so, you know, at one time Paul was was stoning Christians. Now he's a Christian, and he's being stoned by the Jews. They drew him out of the city... And they thought that he was dead. He was stoned so badly, they thought they killed him. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And notice this, he's just been stoned to death, or practically to death. He gets up, he preaches the gospel, and he says, we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Christianity is not a walk in the park. It's not just come into Christ and everything's going to be wonderful. Come into Christ and you will have deep joy, but be prepared for tribulation. We even saw that in Revelation 13 that many of the saints are put to death for what we believe. We, we better be prepared, as Paul was, to die for this. This is real. Yes, there's a deep joy in being Christian, but there's a deep conviction that we, we love not our lives to the death. So he gets up, bloodied. They thought he was dead. 
We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. There's nothing that's going to separate us. And when they had ordained them, notice this, ordained them elders, plural, in every church, singular. So it's, it's plurality of eldership. It's not just you know one elder, one church. No, plurality. Multiple elders in, in every church. And prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. So he's just constantly preaching the word, spreading the gospel. And then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they were come, had gathered the church together. They rehearsed all that God had done with them. And speaking to the Jewish Christians, how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. So yes, Christianity is the first religion that is open to the whole world. But it's not that we're making up a new religion. God has a covenant with Abraham. Because of that covenant, or under the umbrella of that covenant with Abraham, he made another covenant with Moses. This was a national covenant. He was setting up a a, a righteous nation, that the whole world could see what a righteous nation looks like. Because of that, he codified the law. From one law, love, to two, love God, love your neighbor, to ten, that show you how to love God, how to love your neighbor, to 613, statutes and judgments that get into real detail in, in building a nation. That was the Mosaic Covenant. And it was all about ceremony and law. That covenant was done away. They broke it. Christ died. It's like a marriage covenant. The husband and wife are bound for life till death do us part. But once one dies, the other is free from the law of marriage. Christ died. So Israel is free. They broke the covenant anyway. But then Christ came back to life. So he's free. He's no longer bound by the Mosaic covenant. So now he can create a new covenant. And this new covenant is still with Israel. Because he said, I will write my laws in their hearts. It's a different covenant. It's with Israel. And now it's opened up to Gentiles. So the Gentiles can come into this covenant. Christianity is not a new religion. It's not a different covenant. It's the same covenant. And both the Mosaic and the New Covenant are under the umbrella of the Abrahamic Covenant. Does that make sense? So let's go to Romans now, where we really see this balance of law and grace. But before we look at the balance, let's go to Romans 9 and notice this. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He's a fascinating man because he was schooled by, how do you say it, Galemiel? Galemiel, yes, who was a very, very knowledgeable teacher, the, the best that the Jews had at the time. So he had the best teaching of the law. He was also a Roman citizen, so he could travel throughout Rome. And God gave him a very deep understanding. So the book of Romans is a great theological treatise on what Christianity is all about and how Gentiles can participate in this covenant. It's the first letter 
because it's the longest letter. So the epistles are, are basically ordered not by date, but by length. And so Romans is the first, it's the longest, it's the most comprehensive in terms of uh, articulating the theology of Christianity. But notice this in Romans 9 and verse 1. Paul says, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul is saying, I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but I have such deep sorrow in my heart that the Jews will not accept Jesus Christ. I wish that I could be accursed and thrown into the lake of fire if it meant that the Jews could accept Christ. My kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, notice this, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. All of these belong to the Israelites. Whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, yes, he, his job was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but he had such a deep grief over the fact that the Jews would not accept Christ, that he wished he, that God would curse him and destroy him if it meant the Jews could be saved, because the covenant is rightly theirs. It's just that it's been opened up for the Gentiles. So let's now see this analysis that Paul makes of grace and law under the new covenant. So clearly under the Mosaic covenant, it was really all about law, very, very particular laws. Now we come under the new covenant, and we have this balancing act between grace and law. Well, what does that mean? Do we do away with the law? So Romans 1 and 2, we won't look there, but it's really demonstrating the fallen nature of man. So Paul makes it very clear how corrupt the sinful nature of man is. Let's pick up the discussion in chapter 3 and verse 21, where he says, Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. So we think of righteousness as being obedience to the law, but Paul is saying the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets acknowledge this. Even the righteousness of God, which is by what? By faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. There is no difference. So this is now a theological treatise by Paul, saying, I know that in the past the covenant was with Judah, was with Israel, but Israel's lost. Only Judah and Benjamin are around. And it was by the law. But now the prophets and the law are witnesses that the righteousness of God actually does not come by the law. It comes by faith of Christ Jesus unto everybody, Jew or Gentile, as long as they believe like Abraham. For there's no difference. Why? All have sinned. I don't care if you're, I keep saying his name, if you were Galamiel, 
Very difficult name for me. Galemio. If you're a Galemio and you know the law left, right, and center, you've still sinned. I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody has sinned. And everybody comes short of the glory of God. Being justified freely, how are we justified? By his grace, through the redemption that is in the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We're justified by grace. There's no law-keeping that can justify us. Grace is necessary. Everybody in this room that is baptized is justified by the blood of Christ. You are righteous, not because of like Job and how all the deeds he did. No, by faith. Freely by his grace. So grace is this free gift. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Big word. It means an appeasement. So God is angry. When, when you look at Romans 1 and 2. And you see the wickedness of man. This incurs God's wrath. We have peace with God. Because Christ is our propitiation. That, that wrath for sin was taken out on Christ. So through grace we have peace with God. Through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. I know about wrath. I think I've shared with some of you in Toronto that when I was a small boy, I was a thief. And I would steal money from my mom's purse. And at first it was like a dollar. And I would go to the store and I'd buy candy. And I'd share it with my friends. And then I got bolder. And I started to take out five dollars. Then I started to take out $20 bills. And I started to buy really expensive things. And I had lots of friends. And I learned to lie to cover my tracks. And it broke my mom's heart, there were four of us, to line us up and ask us if we were stealing from her. And I remember my mom crying because she couldn't put dinner on the table. Because I had taken all the money. You get bolder and bolder. Finally, my mom was cleaning up the bedroom. And I had a bunch of toys stacked under the bed. And she found them. And I'm telling you, to this day, I will never forget. My mom kept a belt in the house. And I was beaten with the belt. And my mom had wrath. She was angry. And I think if you were clear down the street, you would have heard me bawling and crying. It was a serious beating. But I'm telling you, I never stole again. Never stole again. I don't lie, I don't steal. And that was beaten out of me. And that's, that was wrath. Now, if I had a propitiation, there would be something I could give to my mom and it would appease her. God is angry with the wicked every day, says so in Psalms. And our wickedness angers God. But Christ's blood appeases that anger. So we don't incur the wrath. Instead, we have says here in verse 26. Oh, sorry, verse 25. To declare his righteousness, notice the grace here, for the remission of sins that we're going to do in the future? No. Grace is for the remission of sins that are past. Deacon Jan said that once we come into the Passover, once we come into Christ's blood, whatever happened in the past is forgiven and forgotten. Move on. It's to, to declare righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. It's like you're, 
driving on the highway, speeding, you've broken the law. A police officer pulls you over and says, do you know how fast you were going? And you usually say, well, no, officer. And he tells you, you were going 142 in a 100-kilometer zone. You're 42 over the speed limit. You've broken the law. And I, this actually happened to me. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm rushing to the airport. I'm trying to get a flight. And you know what the officer had said? He said, you know what? Have a good day. And he let me go. Do I then leave from there and step on the gas again and speed? No. The past sin is forgiven. I want to get to the airport. I don't want to be stopped again. And so the law is still there. What I do now is I watch the, the, the speedometer very carefully, and I gingerly make it to the airport because I don't want to be pulled over again. So grace is regarding sins that are past. It's not to say we can now live carelessly and wantonly going forward. Verse 26, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that we might be just, and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Our justification has nothing to do with law-keeping. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. The law is still extant. We don't discredit the law. The law is God's law. In fact, the law is the representation or the codification of God's love. The law is love. Romans 13.10 says, Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So law is how we as human beings love one another. It's God's nature codified. So do we say here that we make void love through faith? Of course not. God forbid. No, we establish the law. We Christians establish the law. But we understand grace is what justifies us. Romans 4 and verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to glory about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it's that belief that was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if you work for me, you work $20 an hour and you work for five hours, I owe you $100. When I give you the $100, you don't jump up and down and say, oh, this is so wonderful, thanks so much. You say, thanks, it's mine. In fact, if I don't pay you, you're knocking on my door saying, where's my money? So here, grace, is, is, is uh, he that works, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that doesn't work, but believes on him that, that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcision only, the Jews only, or upon Gentiles also? 
For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it reckoned then? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? So the passage goes on to say that Abraham was declared righteous while he was uncircumcised. So how can you, a Jew, now say, for me to be righteous, I must be circumcised, when the very father of faith was uncircumcised when he was declared righteous? Grace has nothing to do with works. Our justification has nothing to do with works. It is a gift of God. So somehow Abraham understood the loving kindness of God. He just somehow got it in his head that this powerful being is also very kind and very loving. And when God called him aside and said, you know what, Abraham? The whole world is going to be blessed through you. Abraham said, you're an awesome God. And it's because you're awesome and you're kind and you're loving, I believe you. Because it's got nothing to do with me. I was an idolater. So faith is about believing in the loving kindness of God. And grace is the manifestation of that loving kindness. The young man Daniel was up here reading a passage about us having new bodies. So we're embodied right now physically. A time is coming when we will be embodied spiritually. We will have spiritual bodies. We'll be the same people, but we'll have spiritual bodies. We'll look just like Christ. We will be powerful. We will not be selfish. We will not be lawbreakers. We will be full of God's nature of love. But this awesome future that is ours has nothing to do with us. It's just a blessing from God. It's his grace. It's his grace that we are written in the book of life. Look at this. And this word grace, uh, charis, charis, you think of charisma. Somebody says somebody's charismatic. It's a gift. It's not something they develop. Just have it. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's hamartia. And it means an offense. It's like when I broke the speed limit. There's a law and I broke it. So sin is the breaking of the law. Shall we continue breaking the law of love? That grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Drop down to verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? So this new covenant is not the Mosaic covenant, which was under law. The Mosaic covenant was very legalistic. The new covenant is by grace. Just believe in Christ and you have access to the new covenant. You come into the new covenant in faith. So what then? So Paul is now reasoning because the Jews are accusing him of certain things. They're saying what? Shall we continue to break the law of love because we're not under the covenant of the law, the Mosaic law, we're now under the new covenant. God forbid, this is ridiculous. Don't you know that to whom you yield your servants, yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death. So if you're going to come under this new covenant and you're going to keep sinning, you're going to go straight to death. 
because the wages of sin is death. So you come under this new covenant by grace, but the days of unleavened bread show us that after we take the Passover, we actually now seek to get the unleavened bread in, the nature of Christ, and we live by the law of God. Verse 17, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, you have obeyed from the heart, notice this, where have you obeyed from? From tablets of stone? According to the old covenant? No. You've obeyed from the heart. The new covenant will be written in our hearts. That form of doctrine which was delivered to you. God said under this new covenant, I will write my law in their hearts. Grace does not do away with the law. It enables us to come into a relationship with God where his very nature, the law, is inside us. We want to do those things that are loving. Love works no ill to his neighbor. We want to bless everybody. And so the law is just the way we operate under this new covenant. Let's go to Romans 8. We'll just wrap up here. This verse is very interesting. Romans 8, 28. I think everybody should know this by heart. We know, notice this, that all things work together for good. For who? For everybody? No. To them that love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose. God Almighty has a purpose. It began with Abraham. He has a purpose to bless the whole world, to bring the whole world under this covenant. If we are part of this purpose, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It all is in the mix for our good. Because God is doing something very, very substantive here. And if we're part of this purpose, it all works together for good. Notice this in verse 29. Whom he foreknew, so God foreknew, Those people that he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. So we are here, by obeying the law, by doing the law, we're taking on the nature of Christ. But this process is something that began in foreknowledge. God foreknew us. And because he foreknew us, he predestinated us to take on this image. So that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Christ has now come up from the dead. He's born, born from the dead, born again from the dead. But he's foreknown us and predestinated us to be like Christ, so that Christ might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. So we are called today because we were predestinated yesterday. And whom he called, them he also justified. You are justified. Not because of anything you did, not because of anything I did, because of the loving kindness of God. Abraham was justified. He had no works, and God justified him, declared him righteous. This word justified means like a court of law, where you're guilty and you come into court, and the judge listens, and he pronounces you innocent, you're free to go. We're justified. Because of God, not because of us. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
again, what Brother Jan was talking about earlier, that we, when we have salvation, we will be glorified. But it's a process. First we're called, then we're justified, then we're glorified. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? This is amazing. Isaac, we say Abraham had no works. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't obey God's law. He just believed God. And he was justified. Isaac wasn't even born. And he was justified. So Paul explains to the Jews, Isaac had no works. When he was in the womb, God foreknew him and justified him. Jacob and Esau were twins in the womb. Before they were even born, God said, Jacob, the the elder will serve the younger. The covenant will be with Jacob. Jacob had no works. Israel had no works, but he was justified. We are justified by grace because of absolutely nothing we have done. We are wretched. We, we are, our nature is horrible. God's nature is loving. God's nature is kind. God's nature is generous. It's because of God's nature that we have grace. But it's because of his grace that we must obey the law. We have the opportunity to obey the law because of his grace. We have the opportunity to come into this divine communion because of his kindness. But we can't come into this divine communion and break the law and think that this is okay. Passover shows us that there must be some really big idea that God has. It must be really, really big. That he would take his son, his only begotten son, and have him here on earth, insulted, brutalized, tortured, suffering, agonizing death. That's a price that he's willing to pay for some really, really big idea. So when we take the Passover, we take it understanding we are under grace. But we must live under law in order to be a part of this big idea that God was willing to pay so much for. That all of the apostles, save one, were martyred for. And happily so. They were happy to be martyred for this big idea. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And as you go there, I want you to think about this water. This water is really a form of energy that's in, the chemist would say, it's liquid form. I could heat this water up and it would look like it has disappeared. It would turn to steam and then to gas. And it would appear to our naked eye as if it has disappeared. And it hasn't. Because science tells us energy does not disappear. It transforms, but it doesn't disappear. So it would be the same water, it would just be invisible. 
and then I could lower the temperature, and this same gas could come back to water. And I could lower the temperature even more, and this same substance, the same energy that was once gas, now liquid, could become solid. We are embodied today with a physical body. This big idea that God has is to give us a new body. Same us. We'll still have two eyes, a nose, a mouth. We'll still have hands. We'll still have legs. But it'll be a different body. Just like this energy can have a different form and become invisible. 1 Corinthians 15. Through God's grace, Abraham received an incredible blessing that the whole world would be blessed through him, through absolutely nothing he did, but through God's loving kindness. And the whole Bible is about God working out this covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a legal covenant, a very physical covenant, and God put it away. The Israelites broke it, and God dismissed it. And he now has this new covenant with Israel, which we all are a part of. We've come into this covenant. But it is, just like the Mosaic covenant, an extension and an outworking of the agreement that he made with Abraham. Abraham didn't even see how this covenant that God made with him would be ultimately fulfilled. He's, he's going to be resurrected and he's going to see. And what he's going to see when he's resurrected is all of us, millions of people with spirit bodies who are committed to bringing the billions of people who have ever lived into the family of God so that the whole world will be blessed by this Abrahamic covenant. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20, but now, and uh, Pastor Murray said this the other day, we, we keep the Passover and we keep it soberly, but Christ is not dead. It says right here, now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when we shall have delivered up the, king, up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Let's just, I, I mentioned this scripture earlier. Let's go to it to conclude. In Romans 13. So as we take the Passover, let's remember that that moede means that Christ was slain from the very foundation of the world. Before man was even created, God understood that the nature of man could not stand up to Satan. And ultimately, Christ would have to shed his blood in order to redeem man. And he's outworking that redemption through the covenant he made with Abraham. And we're participating in that covenant. And as a result of that covenant, the grace of God is going to see all of us justified. 
We are, nobody can condemn us. God has justified us. And we will be in God's kingdom with a new name, with new body, with new powers. Because we have developed the nature of God, which comes by practicing his law. Romans 13 and verse 10. Love works no ill, zero. You will never see love work ill to his neighbor. It's like a mathematical formula. If, if we have love, there's no ill to neighbor. Therefore, this is like perfect mathematical uh, analysis here, logic. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In order for us to be blessed and trusted with this big idea that God has, that we will be God beings with tremendous power, we must have this love. We would never use that power to harm anybody. We would use that power to lay down our lives. We would shed our blood. Like Paul, we would wish that we could be accursed if it meant that the whole world could be saved. And so as we come together to take the Passover, let's reflect on the magnitude of this sacrifice and how that magnitude of sacrifice reflects the loving kindness of God. And the, the blessing that Abraham inherited and the blessing that we have inherited has nothing to do with us. It's just the, the magnitude of the loving kindness of God. Let's keep the Passover soberly, but with a very deep joy and understanding of how loving God is. This podcast was brought to you by the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more, visit us on the web at cgiburlington.org.